أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد Previously we examined the Shi'b of Abi Talib, the Valley of Abu Talib, those very difficult three years that the Bani Hashim and many Muslims experienced completely isolated and boycotted. Let's mention one interesting incident that happened during those three years before we examine a very fundamental and important aspect of the history of the Prophet and that is his uncle Abu Talib and whether Abu Talib was a man of faith he believed in the message of Islam, whether he was Muslim or not. When the Prophet was in Shu'ab Abi Talib, the only time that the Muslims were allowed to leave the valley was during the Umrah and the Hajj. So in the month of Rajab and in the Hijjah, they were allowed to come to Masjid al-Haram and do their pilgrimage, the major one in the Hijjah or the minor one which we call the Umrah and Rajab. Once the Prophet was in Masjid al-Haram at the time of the pilgrimage, when two men from the tribe of Khazraj come to Mecca, the city of Medina which was called Yathrib at the time, before Islam Medina was called Yathrib, you had two prominent tribes, the Aus and the Khajraj, they had historical rivalries with each other. They would fight each other day and night. In fact, due to some silly, petty reasons, like the outcome of a horse race, would make them fight and kill each other. Tribe one says, we're the winners of the race. The other tribe says, no, we're the winners of the race. Sometimes these battles and wars would last 100 years. Just imagine 100 years of fighting one another to death because of petty issues. Two men from the Khazraj, so they were two main tribes, Aus Khazraj fighting each other, two men decide to come to Mecca. They're like, look, we've had enough. We've been overpowered by the Aus. Let's go to Mecca and see if we can make some sort of alliance with Quraysh so that they would support us and will defeat the Aus. So these two men, they come and they enter Mecca. The first was As'ad ibn Zurara and the other one was Zakawan. Two Khazraji men, they enter Mecca. When they enter Mecca, this was in Rajab now, they had come for the Umrah, they were wearing their ihram, coming to do the pilgrimage. As'ad ibn Zurara was a friend of Utbah ibn Rabi'ah. Utbah ibn Rabi'ah was a high-ranking mushrik in Mecca. He had a very high position. He was the friend of this guy, this Khazraji guy who came from Medina. So he meets Utbah and he tells him, look, the reason why I've come to Mecca is that we've been battling each other and we want this to stop and the only way to stop is for you 
Quraysh to get involved and hopefully you can stop this battle. Are you willing to do that? Make an alliance with us now, you'll come to Medina and hopefully you can resolve this. Atba says, no, sorry, I'm not interested. He tells him why. He says, first of all, you guys are far. Medina is about 400 something kilometers north of Mecca, that's about 250 miles. So it's not a nearby place where we can easily go. But the major reason is, we're too busy. He tells him, what are you busy with? MashaAllah, you Meccans, you don't have the battles that we're having. Mecca is safe. You tribes are not killing each other in Mecca. So what are you busy with? He says, we're busy with a man called Muhammad. He started this new religion and he is considering us unbelievers. He's refuting our idol worshipping. He's created division in our society. Trust me, we're very busy with this matter and we don't have time to come and make an alliance with you. Then they give him advice. They tell him, look, now you're going to go because it's the pilgrimage season, he's in Masjid al-Haram. Normally he's stuck in the valley, we've boycotted him, but because now it's the time of Umrah, he's in Masjid al-Haram. When you go, this guy has the power of sorcery. Make sure you don't hear his words because they're magic, they're going to affect you, they're going to pull you. He's like, so what do you suggest I do? They told him, put cotton in your ears. Because initially they told him, just go back to Medina. He was like, well, I can't, I'm in my ihram, I have to go and finish my umrah, I have to circle around the Kaaba, do the tawaf. They're like, okay, if you have to, if you must go to Masjid al Haram, put cotton in your ears so that you don't hear him. Look at, look at the terrorism they used against the Prophet, subhanAllah. So he's like, okay, Utbah was his friend, he took the advice of his friend, he put cotton in his ears. Now the Quran mentions this, you know, that they would put their fingers in their ears, they would turn away, they literally did this. So the poor guy, he puts cotton in his ears, he goes to Masjid al-Haram, now he's passing by the first round around the Kaaba, he sees the Prophet sitting there, talking, saying something. He's like, no, no, I'm not going to hear this guy, impossible. He's going to pull me through his magic. So he keeps the cotton in his ears, he doesn't hear. But then when he gets to the second round, he regrets it. He rebukes himself. He tells himself, are you an idiot? You've come all the way from Medina and such an important event is happening in Mecca. Don't you at least want to tell your people about it? They're going to tell you, you went to Mecca, did you hear anything? I said, no, I had cotton in my ears, I didn't know what was going on. People will make fun of me, I'll make a fool out of myself. I can't be that ignorant, let me just see what he has to say. <laughs> so he removes the cotton from his ears. The Prophet is by Hijr Ismail, right by the Kaaba. He comes to the Prophet and he tells him in Arabic, good morning. Now the way that he said it was an'im sabahan, good morning. So when the Prophet hears him, he tells him Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us a better greeting, which is the greeting of Islam and that is assalamu alaikum. So he's interested in this new greeting, peace on you and that's the greeting of the people of paradise. He's slowly now pulled by the words of the Prophet sallallahu Then he tells the Prophet, look, what do you have to say? Give it to me, what's this new religion about? 
So the Prophet tells him, it's very simple, you bear witness that there is no God but Allah, that I am the messenger of God. He tells him, okay, tell me more. I've heard you've got something that you say to the people, what is that? He didn't know what the Qur'an was, he had just heard something. Tell me about this Qur'an. The Prophet begins to recite verse 151 to 152 of Surah Al-An'am. Beautiful verse. قُلْ تَعَالَوْ أَتْلُ مَا حَرَّمَ رَبُّكُمْ عَلَيْكُمْ Come, do not commit polytheism. Don't commit shirk. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded you to be good to your parents. Do not kill your children because of your poverty, because that's what many Arab tribes would do. Out of fear of poverty or because they had poverty, they would kill their kids. Because they're like, when they grow up and I have to raise them, that's a financial burden on me. And I don't want that financial burden. They'd actually murder their infants. So the Quran says, don't do that. Allah says, I'm the one who will give you your sustenance and the sustenance of your children. Don't be so concerned about the sustenance of your children. You know, subhanAllah, even these days in our community, you find parents, it's good to be concerned about your children and their financial future, that's good. But don't be excessive about it. You'll see some parents working day and night. They want to secure a house for every one of their children from now, money in the bank account. Take it easy. Don't overwork yourself and stress yourself out trying to take care of the future of your child. Habibi, your child has Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some of us sometimes we try to take the role of God. Be responsible with your children but don't be excessive about it. I know some parents, no, he won't sit still until he buys a house for his little kids from now and he puts it in their name, especially if they're girls, right? Because he wants to secure their future. It's nice, if you have extra money, that's fine. But for you to work day and night and put your family in hardship because you want to save uh, to buy a house for your future children, nah, it's unnecessary. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has guaranteed the rizq, don't worry about it. So they would actually kill their children out of poverty. So the Quran says, this is haram. Don't go near anything that's immoral whether it's in private, in public. Don't kill any soul unjustly. Now by the way, the Arabic eloquence contained in the verse is amazing. If you know Arabic and you've mastered it, if you read the verse and you see the flow of it, it's mind-boggling. The Prophet is, you know, continuing the verse and then don't go near the money of the orphan except if you're acting on the interest of the orphan. Beautiful teachings. The man is mesmerized. He's come from Medina. This is something he's never heard in his life. Beautiful teachings from the Prophet. When the Prophet finishes these verses, the man just naturally says to the Prophet, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa annaka rasulullah. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. Then he tells him, O Messenger of God, let me tell you something. The reason why we came from Yathrib to Mecca is because we have these tribal rivalries and wars and honestly I came to make an alliance with somebody so we can stop all of that. But guess what? God had another plan for me. I came for a political reason 
and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought me to Islam. I found something better than what I was looking for. Forget trying to find a political alliance and to go and you know defeat those Aus. I'm no longer interested in that. I found Islam. Then he tells the Prophet that we are going back to Yathrib. Can you send someone, one of your companions to teach us? Because we don't know this Quran, we don't know the teachings of Islam. Is it possible that you sent someone? So the Prophet sends Mus'ab ibn Umair. Mus'ab ibn Umair was a young man who was very spoiled by his parents. He had everything a youth could desire that day. When he becomes Muslim, his parents kick him out of the house. They boycott him because he followed the Prophet. He knew much of the Quran, yes. Mus'ab ibn Umair, I don't know where he's from. Why, have you heard that he's from Yemen? There was someone who was from Yemen who was very wealthy, he came from a very wealthy family and then when he went to go see the Prophet, like his family... Uh, was it the one whom his uncle boycotted him, Dhul Bijadain? No. In any case, I don't know where he's, exactly he's from, but he came from a rich family, he was very spoiled. But because he embraced the religion of Islam, you know, his parents excommunicated him. So he knew many parts of the Quran. The Prophet sends him, he sends him with these, you know, two men to go and preach Islam in Yathrib. And many, many people from many tribes, they become Muslim as a result of this incident. So we see that during the three years in which the Prophet was in the valley, even during the days when he had access to Masjid al-Haram, they would actually pretty much force people to put cotton in their ears so they would not hear the Prophet accusing him of magic or sorcery. These were the daily conditions of Muslims in Mecca. Just imagine the psychological you know, difficulties that they had to experience. Now let's examine a very important subject over here as we talk about Abu Talib, so far we've seen how Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet, was with the Prophet since he was young. Let's not forget when the Prophet was young and he would take him to those trips to Syria, right? How he was very protective of the Prophet and remember what Bahira told him, you know, that he has enemies and Abu Talib took him back immediately. So Abu Talib really raised the Messenger of God. He supported the Prophet you know, in a way that no one did at that time. But historically, the faith of Abu Talib has become a sectarian issue. The followers of Ahlul Bayt believe that he was a believer. Not only was a believer, we have hadiths that he was actually a prophet. Yes, a local prophet who did not have a public message, but he was in the rank of prophets or he was a prophet or he was a successor to a prophet. So the followers of Ahlul Bayt are very clear that Abu Talib was of high rank and a very high faith and he was a Muslim. However, you find many schools of thought, many Muslim books like Bukhari and others, they condemn Abu Talib and they accuse him of dying as a mushrik, as a pagan and that he is burning in hell every day. We'll examine some of those hadiths. So this is actually a very important point and one reason why it is very important is because you often hear other schools of thought 
attacking the Shia of condemning companions, right? We always hear that. You guys condemn the companions, you guys slander the companions, all companions are to be respected. Here you have the single most important companion of the Prophet, Sahabi, who lived with the Prophet in Mecca. Yet they curse him and they condemn him and they say he went to hell. So when they accuse us of condemning companions, you're the first to condemn companions, the first companion of the Prophet, the first supporter of the Prophet, you guys are condemning him and you're saying he went to hell and they get offended if you talk about some other companions and say they disobeyed the Prophet, they deviated, they don't take it properly. But when it comes to Abu Talib, no, they slander him, they attack him, they accuse him of you know, uh, going to hell and so on and so forth. So this is a very important issue that must be discussed because this is the biggest supporter of the Prophet in Mecca. We have to do justice to the personality of Abu Talib So let's not forget the stance of Abu Talib since the first day that the Prophet declared the religion of Islam. When you put all these pieces together, it will generate certainty that he was a firm believer in the Prophet. First of all, let's not forget that when Abu Talib saw the Prophet along with Lady Khadija, along with Imam Ali praying in Masjid al-Haram, that was the first prayer, only three. What did he tell his son Ja'far? He told his son Ja'far, Sil Janaha ibn Ammik, go and join your cousin. So we see Abu Talib knew that Imam Ali had joined, he actually commands his other son Ja'far to go and support the Prophet. You as a father, if you don't believe in the message of that Prophet, would you command your son? Now okay, your first son didn't get permission from you. He was a believer from day one, right? And he was asked whether he took permission from his father. He said, Allah did not take permission from my father when he decided to create me. So I don't need his permission to worship God the way he wants. Okay, Imam Ali did not take permission from his father. However, Ja'far, who's the one who commanded Ja'far to go and join the Prophet? It was Abu Talib. If you don't believe in the message of the Prophet, why are you sending your other son to join the Prophet? Number two, when we say the Prophet being, when we say the Prophet, you know, being harassed, repeatedly being harassed in Masjid al-Haram, they would take the intestines of animals, they would pollute, you know, his, his body and his clothes. What would Abu Talib do? He would get up, he would seek revenge from them, he would stop them, he would threaten them, he would take those same intestines and he would wipe them on their mustaches. Why would you do that if you don't really believe in the message of the Prophet It's not just him being emotional because he is his nephew, that's not the case. And what proves this is that last time we mentioned when they were in the valley, what would Abu Talib do every night? Not only would he keep a watch on the Prophet, he would surround the Prophet with who? With your sons. Who's closer to you, your son or your nephew? Why would you sacrifice your son for your nephew if you don't believe in the message of your nephew? Because Sunnis say it was out of, you know, the 
exactly. It was out of the natural compassion that a relative has for his relative, right? Well, if you're talking about emotions, then you should have more emotions for your sons because your sons are closer to you than your nephew. But we see Abu Talib, he always defends the Prophet, supports the Prophet, even if it means putting his sons in danger. That's not acting emotionally. You would only do that if you believe in the message of the Prophet. So this is another indication over here. All these actions are, of, you know, are giving you an image of someone who believes in the message. He's not acting because of tribal interests or family interests, no. So let's examine some points to establish that Abu Talib was truly a man of faith. The first point is that Abu Talib commanded a very high status in Mecca because essentially he was the most high-ranking member of Bani Hashim and he was old, you know he was in his 80s at the time so he was very well respected. He sacrificed his status by going against the elite of his society. He put Bani Hashim into difficulty by supporting the Prophet. Is this something that you do out of emotion or because you believe in the message of the Prophet? See, if you're looking for the interests of your tribe, you shouldn't support the Prophet because you're dragging the entire tribe to a showdown with the, with, the, with the pagans. You don't do that. That's not someone who's wise and he cares about his tribe, no. So when they accuse him of, oh, he, it was a tribal reason why he was defending the Prophet, right? Because they came from the same tribe, same family, Bani Hashim. No, it's the exact opposite. If you care about your tribe, he should not have defended the Prophet. Because defending the Prophet meant the destruction of his tribe the loss of their status, being boycotted for three years. Obviously this demonstrates that he believed in the message of the Prophet. So this is one point. By the way, when it comes to the you know, idea that Abu Talib was not a believer, not all Sunnis accept that. There are some Sunni scholars who believe that he was a believer and that he died uh, you know, uh, a believer, but most Sunni scholars have maintained throughout history that he did not die as a believer. Let's examine some proofs now that demonstrates Abu Talib was a believer. First proof, if Imam Ali's father was not a believer, then Muawiyah and the Zubayris, the Zubayris were the followers of Zubayr, they were against Imam Ali, they would have definitely used this point to attack Imam Ali because they used every means possible, every tool in order to ruin the reputation of Imam Ali. We don't see a single time where Muawiyah uses this, oh your father died a mushrik, he died an unbeliever, why? This means it did not exist at the time. The faith of Abu Talib was so clear that Muawiyah could not have denied that. This was something fabricated later in history, yes. Well, this is history. In our history books, even Sunni history, we don't have a single example of the Zubayris or the followers of Muawiyah attacking Imam Ali and saying that your father was not a believer. This is not existent in our history. Which means all these hadiths that attack him of being a non-believer were fabricated later in history. That's the first point. 
The second point is that Abu Talib confesses that he believes in one God and he does so in his lines of poetry. Let's read some of them. For example, in one line of poetry, by the way, he was a very eloquent poet. He says, Malikun Nasi laysa lahu Sharik. He says, Malikun Nas, Malikun Nas, the king of people, Allah, has no Sharik, has no partner. Allah is the Wahhab, the giver. Al Mubdi, the one who started and he gave life. And he'll take us back on the day of judgment. Is this something? that an unbeliever states, a pagan states? No, these are the clear words of someone who believes in the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's one. The second one, he has lines of poetry in which he actually confirms that the Prophet is what? A messenger. He clearly states that Muhammad is a messenger. Let's examine some of them. He says in one line of poetry, أَلَمْ تَعْلَمُوا أَنَّا وَجَدْنَا مُحَمَّدًا نَبِيًّا كَمُوسَى خُطَّ فِي أَوَّلِ الْكُتُبِ Do you not know that we have found Muhammad, a prophet, a messenger, just like Musa, and this has been written in previous books. نَبِيٌّ أَتَاهُ الْوَحْيُ مِنْ عِنْدِ رَبِّهِ A prophet who received revelation from his Lord. And then he continues, you know, to say, يَا شَاهِدَ اللَّهِ Oh Allah, you are the witness, be the witness. Inni I am on the religion of the Prophet Ahmad, meaning the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa What's that? In, in lines of poetry, which history has documented. In lines of poetry, he confirms his faith in the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa so we have many, many lines of poetry because he was a poet, he would issue many poems. So we see that he clearly states that I am on the deen of Ahmed, I am on the deen of Muhammad. Yes. So if the Umayyads and Muawiyah, if this attack wasn't present at their time, is it possible that this, is a, this attack has an Abbasid slant? So this attack, this happened either at the end of Bani Umayyah or probably yes, during the Abbasids. Um, and there were political reasons, so at the time of Bukhari, we see this idea was quite widespread. So yes, this probably spread during the time of the Abbasids. We don't exactly know who was the first to propagate this, but you know, it's highly probable that either at the end of Bani Umayyah or the very beginning of Bani Abbas. So this is an argument that establishes the faith of Abu Talib. The fact that he's confessing that he believes in the message of the Prophet. So this is one proof that we have. Another proof that we have, Imam Zayn al-Abideen actually mentions this. Al-Imam Zayn al-Abideen, he mentions when he was asked about the Iman of Abu Talib, what does he say? He says, Subhanallah, I'm even shocked that anyone can make such a claim. Why? He says because the wife of Abu Talib was who? The mother of Imam Ali. Fatima bint Asad. Fatima bint Asad was amongst the early Muslims. Now there was a law instituted by Islam that if a wife becomes a believer and her husband is a non-believer, is a pagan, 
what would the Prophet tell them to do? He would separate them, right? Because a Muslim woman could not stay the wife of a pagan. And there are instances in which the Prophet did separate between them. However, did he ever separate between Abu Talib and his wife? Why not? Indicates he was a believer. Had Abu Talib been a pagan, and Imam Zain al-Abideen states, he would have separated between him and his wife Fatima bint Asad because there is no discussion that Fatima was a believer. Sunnis even accept that. But till the last day of Abu Talib's life, we see that Fatima bint Asad was there with him. And the Prophet never attempted to separate between them or to ask his uncle to divorce her, for example. And that is proof that indeed, you know, um, he was a believer in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's one argument that we can also use to make the case that Abu Talib was a believer in God. Any questions on this argument? And by the way, there's a verse in the Holy Quran in which Allah says, وَلَا تُمْسِكُوا بِعِصَمِ الْكَوَافِرِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this verse prohibits the Muslim women who were married to pagans to stay their wives. They had to be separated. Yes, brother. Because it was the other way around. You mean if the... Okay, if the man converts and he became a Muslim, in order for his wife to stay his wife, she has to be at least from the people of the book, a Christian or a Jew. But if she was a pagan, a mushrik, he also had to get separated from her, yes. So Islam does not allow a Muslim, man or woman, to marry a pagan, an idol worshiper. Islam does not recognize such a marriage. However, if the wife is Christian or she is Jewish, then yes, Islam does recognize a marriage like that. Yes, and that also includes an atheist. Islam does not recognize the marriage of a Muslim to an atheist. Only the people of the book, that's the only exception. Now by the way, that's not discrimination to say that a Muslim man can marry a Christian wife but not the other way around, right? There are reasons, there are practical reasons why the religion of Islam outlawed that because if you historically um, examine the custody of children in most societies around the world, who had the legal custody? The father. So if the father is non-Muslim, chances are the kids will grow up to be what? Non-Muslims because the father being a non-Muslim and he's got the legal custody, his religion would be imposed on the children and that would make them non-Muslims. Whereas if it was the other way around, if the father was a Muslim and the mother was Christian, yes the mother plays a big role in raising the children, but legally because he was the guardian historically through in most societies, then chances are the children would grow up to be Muslims because they would usually follow the religion of their father. So this is one reason why Islam made this distinction. So we have a number of proofs that demonstrate that Abu Talib was indeed a true believer in God. If you look at the ahadith of Ahlul Bayt, we have many ahadith. For example, Imam al-Sadiq he states that on the day of judgment, the Prophet will do such a shafa'a for Abu Talib such that the creations of God, all people will be shocked. 
how great his status is and the Prophet gave him such a high status through his shafa'a and intercession. So when you look at the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, they were very clear that Abu Talib was a believer. Now let's examine some claims from other schools of thought. One claim that they have made is that Bukhari narrates a hadith attributed to the Prophet in which the Prophet supposedly said that my uncle Abu Talib because he refused to believe in me, yes he did support me but I asked him to believe in me on his deathbed when he was dying, I told him Ya Am, my uncle, if you believe I will do shafa'a for you, unfortunately he didn't. Therefore on the day of judgment Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will keep him in lahdahin min nar. Lahdah in Arabic is a shallow fire. So the Prophet says, in the end I did do shafa'a for him. He was supposed to go to the lowest levels of hell. Who's supposed to go? The one who defended the Prophet. The one who would ask his sons to sleep around the Prophet. The one who sacrificed this the position and the status of his tribe, he's supposed to go to the lowest pit of hell. I don't know why, for what reason, why the lowest pit of hell? What did he do for that? He's, he became worse than other pagans, right? Because other pagans don't have to go to the lowest pits of hell, they just go to hell. But Haram, Abu Talib, he, he goes to the lowest pit of hell, the Prophet says, okay, but now that you died as an unbeliever, then I will do shafa'a for you. So instead of being burned in the lowest levels of hell, you know those deepest levels, Allah will put you in a shallow fire, it goes up to your ankle, but because it's so hot, this is Bukhari, it says as a result of that shallow fire, the brain of Abu Talib will boil. These are the actual words of Bukhari. Can you believe what they say about the uncle of the Prophet who supported him, who sacrificed everything that he had for him, his brain is going to boil for eternity. So they mentioned this hadith in Bukhari. First of all, the chain of this hadith is weak. Allam al-Amini in his beautiful book, he's demonstrated that even according to Sunni standards, the narrators of this hadith are not reliable. So even when you look at the chain of the hadith, it's disqualified. Number two, this hadith contradicts Sahih hadiths that we have that state Abu Talib did have faith. Number three, these hadiths themselves are highly contradictory. When you look at the details and the claims that they do, they make their contradictory. Some of them claim that the Prophet said, okay, my shafa'a is not going to help you. Some of them say, no, my shafa'a is going to help you. My shafa'a will save you from the deepest levels of hell, it will take you to a shallow hell. That in itself is contradictory when you have these narrations. And this narration does not even make sense by the way, because Allah either accepts the shafa'a of the Prophet or He doesn't. If Allah wants to accept the shafa'a of the Prophet and He can take him, pull him out of the lowest levels of hell, just take him out of hell, why take him to a shallow hell? And if Allah doesn't want to accept the shafa'a of the Prophet here, He's not going to accept it. So what's this little middle shafa'a here that's taking him from one part of hell to another part? It's just nonsense. This is not something the Prophet would do. This is not something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would do. 
So this is one hadith that they have mentioned. But here's the most problematic aspect of this hadith. This hadith claims that when Abu Talib was on his deathbed dying, the Prophet asked him to become a Muslim, he refused. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals a verse in the Holy Quran which condemns Abu Talib and it makes it clear that he died as a mushrik. What is that verse? Let's pull that verse and see how they tried to implement this on Abu Talib. So we find this verse in Surah At-Tawbah, verse number 113. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala states, مَا كَانَ لِلنَّبِيِّ وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا أَنْ يَسْتَغْفِرُوا لِلْمُشْرِكِينَ Allah says the Prophet or the believers do not have the right to do istighfar, to ask for the forgiveness of who? The mushrikeen. وَلَوْ كَانُوا قُرْبَى Even though those mushrikeen can be your relatives. مِنْ بَعْدِ مَا تَبَيَّنَ لَهُمْ أَنَّهُمْ أَصْحَابُ الْجَحِيمِ When it became clear to the Prophet and the believers that they are the people of hell by staying mushrik. What does Bukhari and other books claim? That this verse was revealed when Abu Talib refused to become Muslim, he died as a pagan, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prohibited the Prophet from doing istighfar for Abu Talib. What's problematic about this claim? It's in Surah Tawbah. This is verse 113 of Surah At-Tawbah. When was Surah At-Tawbah revealed? The very end of Medina. When did Abu Talib die? In Mecca, which year? Year 10 after the Ba'tha. So Abu Talib passed away a good 10, 11, 12 years before Surah At-Tawbah was even revealed on the Prophet. So how can God send a verse when Abu Talib was dying? That in itself exposes their fabrications. That they fabricated this hadith and they tried to falsely attribute this verse to Abu Talib. This verse was revealed in Medina, 13 years, 12 years after Abu Talib died. What does it have to do with Abu Talib? But the hadith, the Sunni hadith claims that when he refused to believe as he was dying or when he died, Allah revealed this verse. This is problematic. This in itself reveals that there's a problem with some of these hadiths. They've cited some other verses, they all have a similar problem. So the verse which they cite was revealed much later and it cannot be applicable to Abu Talib. So that's one counter argument to some of these hadiths that they have brought forward. Now Abu Talib, by the way, he did practice taqiyya. Even though he would clearly show his faith on certain occasions, but he never made a public announcement that he was a Muslim. Why? See, the only way that Abu Talib could have been seen kind of neutral and objective by the other pagans and for him to have his tribal status so he can support the Prophet was by practicing taqiyya. Because if Abu Talib would have openly declared his Islam in Masjid al-Haram and he would have said the shahada clearly in front of everyone, then obviously he will have taken sides 
he would have been with the Prophet and uh, you know in his same camp and the Quraysh would have attacked the Prophet without fearing anything anymore because now Abu Talib is with the Prophet, that's it, he lost his status. We're not going to try to negotiate with him, we're not going to keep his position. Abu Talib had to do taqiyya to effectively support the Prophet because when you do taqiyya you're still seen kind of neutral, right? You're being objective and Abu Talib was telling them, no, you have no right to fight Muhammad, you know, he's not bringing anything that's false, everything that he says is true. But he's not openly taking sides by declaring his shahada. Because the minute you do that, you lose your status as someone whom they wanted to negotiate with. One could argue that this is maybe why some Sunnis believe that he died as an unbeliever, but, but if you look at the proof, when you put the clues and the pieces together, it's very clear that he died as a believer. And even back then, remember, when we look at those early days of Islam, no companion, even during the time of Muawiyah had this thought. It was very clear to them that he was a believer, but he was instructed by God or the Prophet not to declare his Islam. Well, the taqiyah is in the Qur'an because Shia taqiyah was more applicable to them. It became a sectarian issue. Today, the average Sunni will tell you there is no taqiyah. But if you ask him about the verse of Ammar ibn Yasir, which we discussed, right? Well, what's that? That was an act of taqiyah. So taqiyah is well established in the Sunnah of the Prophet and in the Holy Qur'an. But today, taqiyah has become synonymous with Shia. So yes, initially they will reject taqiyya, but it's well founded in the Holy Qur'an. So Abu Talib was a man of faith. Abu Talib had the utmost faith, but yes, he would not always declare it. Sometimes he would, like in his lines of poetry. These lines of poetry, he did not say them very privately. No, sometimes he made <laughs> public statements, but he was very careful. He would not always make public statements like that in order to be seen as neutral. But when you look at his life, is it possible that he didn't believe in the message of the Prophet? Absolutely not. He believed in the message of the Prophet. You don't have to publicly come in Masjid al-Haram and say, I'm a Muslim in order for you to be a Muslim. When you believe in God, he says, I believe there is one God. When he says Muhammad is a prophet like Musa, well what more do you want that you're a Muslim then? He doesn't have to come and openly say, I'm a Muslim. Yes, brother. He also handled the nikah. Well, that was before Islam. So they could argue even at that time there was no religion yet. Well, there's, yeah, no, but there's no discussion with his birth in Shab Abu Talib, right? The Prophet was born in Shab Abu Talib, yes. But how does that prove that he's a Muslim though? Why was he there in the first place, number one, number two? But their, their argument, their argument is that when he was born there was no Islam yet, so it was okay for him to be born in, in a house like that. That would be their argument, that this is before the religion of Islam. But yes, that's a good point, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not have his prophet being born on a little piece of land, you know, owned by a pagan, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala honors his prophet. or having you know, a non-believer in God perform the marriage ceremony for the Prophet and Lady Khadija 
So all of the arguments that they have presented are weak arguments. They're just to defame Imam Ali Abu Talib, his biggest crime was what? That he was the father of Imam Ali And those who came, especially during the time of Ben al-Abbas, they wanted to disqualify Imam Ali. And so they said his father was a pagan. That was a way to discredit Imam Ali. Otherwise, there is no question on the faith of Abu Talib. In fact, there are hadiths Sunnis have narrated. Sunnis have narrated that the Prophet came to Abu Talib as he was passing away. And he told him, Ya Am, you supported me. You kept ties with your family members. I will do such a shafa'a for you on the day of judgment, more than the shafa'a for all of creation. Everyone will be surprised at the shafa'a. So the Prophet in Sunni sources, he has been documented to say that to Abu Talib. Would he say that to someone who's an unbeliever? Of course not. Now one argument they've cited is that the Prophet did not pray on him. When he passed away, the Prophet did not pray on him. He commanded Imam Ali to wash him, to shroud him and to bury him. He never prayed on him and that indicates that he was not a Muslim because if he was a Muslim, he had to pray on him. What's the flaw with this argument? Salat al-Janazah was not yet instituted in Mecca. When did it become wajib? In Medina. So even when Lady Khadija, who's definitely a Muslim, the first Muslim, even when she passed away, did the Prophet do the Salah of Janazah on her? He did not. Why? Because the Salah was not be mandatory yet. It was in Medina that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made it mandatory. Salat al-Janazah was in the early years. I don't recall the exact year, but it was definitely in Medina that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had made it mandatory. So it was not mandatory. That's not an indication that he was not a believer. In any case, there are many, many proofs. It's an exhaustive list, if we want to go through it, about the faith of Abu Talib. So when does Abu Talib pass away? After they leave the valley of Abu Talib in the 10th year of the Ba'tha, Abu Talib at this time, he was either 86 years old or 91 years old. So he was very old at this time. And Abu Talib, shortly after they left the Sha'b of Abi Talib, he, became, he becomes sick and he passes away. Now we don't know the exact date because there is some discrepancy. Some hadith state on the 26th of Rajab, some say the 7th of Ramadan. We have another hadith that says in another month. In any case, we know that was in the 10th year after the Ba'tha, Abu Talib passes away. The Prophet is very disturbed when he hears the news of Abu Talib passing away because now he lost his ultimate supporter. The Prophet was seen crying. He becomes very emotional. In fact, he goes to the grave of Abu Talib and he asks Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have mercy on Abu Talib and he's uh, put by Abdul Muttalib. So in the cemetery of Hujun, which is a cemetery in Mecca. It's not by Masjid al-Haram, it's some distance. There's some distance between it and Masjid al-Haram. Some of you may have visited those who have gone for the Hajj or for the Umrah. It's called Maqbarat al-Hujun. Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet, was buried there. So they had Abu Talib buried right by his father, Abdul Muttalib. So some people say that Rasul Karim gave his Jubba to use as his kafan for Abu Talib. 
the Prophet gave his garment to use as the kafan for Abu Talib? I don't know. I would have to so check the sources. That, that same with the, uh, Fatima bin Asad. Fatima bin Asad, yes. We have the hadith that states the Prophet went inside her grave and he took his garment and he put his garment as a kafan for her in the grave, yes. For Abu Talib, I would have to check the sources. You've, you've heard that for, he did the same for Abu Talib? Well, I heard that he, he slept in the cover, in the cover first, in the grave, before the Before he was put in the qabr. And the same thing Possibly. Yeah. yeah, he did that with, uh, you know, um, his wife, the mother of Imam Ali alayhi salam, Fatima bint Asad. So if, if, if we can prove that through our sources or their sources, that's another indication that Abu Talib was a believer in God. Because if he was a pagan, the Prophet would not do something like that. Now Abu Talib passes away. This was very difficult on the Prophet. Three days later, Lady Khadija السلام, passes away. Three days later. So you can imagine the pain and the difficulty that the Prophet had to go through. Some hadith mentions one month later, but we do have narrations that state three days later. The Prophet was in so much pain such that he calls that year Am al-Huzn, the year of sorrow. He loses two of his greatest supporters, his financial supporter and the partner of his life, Lady Khadija, and also his political, social supporter, which was Abu Talib. So the Prophet really, you know, he, he, he suffered a big blow when Abu Talib passed away and Lady Khadija السلام, passed away. Lady Khadija was also buried in that same cemetery, which is the cemetery of Hujun. We have a narration that tells us Lady Khadija السلام, shortly before she passed away in the 10th year after the Ba'tha, she made a will. She told the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, I have a will that I would like to communicate to you. So the Prophet says, yes, what is your will Khadija? She tells him the first will that I have is that you forgive me for any shortcomings. If I've had any shortcomings in my life, for you to forgive me. Look at her humbleness. She was the biggest millionaire in Arabia when she married the Prophet. The day she died, she did not own a single coin because she gave everything away, especially during those three years when they were in Shaib Abi Talib. Yet she's telling him, forgive me for any shortcomings. Look at the Iman of Lady Khadija The Prophet says, Khadija, please don't say that. You have no shortcomings. You gave me when others denied me. You stood by my side when others rejected me. You don't have any shortcomings. Then she says, okay, the second will that I have, she points to Lady Fatima Fatima at this time she was about seven years old or some narration state five years old. So she was somewhere between five and seven. She was a young girl. She points to Lady Fatima and she tells the Prophet, take care of her after me. And don't let any of the women of Quraysh to harass her, to yell at her, or to slap her face in any way. Allahu Akbar. Look at Lady Khadija. It's as if she sensed something would happen after her. Remember, when she lost her own status and the women of Quraysh boycotted her, she knew that Lady Fatima would also run into some difficulties like that. And subhanAllah, in Medina we all know what happened. 
with some of the wives of the Prophet and how they treated Lady Fatima The third request, she tells him, Ya Rasulullah, when you put me in my grave, I am concerned about the grave and I want the comfort from you. How? I want you to take your garment and put it with my kafan. Because if I know in my grave I have the garment of the Messenger of God, that will give me comfort. The Prophet says, I will fulfill that. So she passes away, they take her to the cemetery of Hujun. As the Prophet is placing her in her grave, he is about to take off his garment in order to put it in the grave with her, Jibra'il descends. Jibra'il tells him, Ya Rasulullah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends you the salam and He has delivered a kafan from paradise for your wife Khadija. So in addition to the garment that you will put, Allah wants you to put the kafan in her grave as well. This is to honor Lady Khadija So He shrouds her with the kafan of Jannah and also His garment and then He buries Lady Khadija We also have a hadith indicating that when Jibra'il came down, he came down with how many kafans? He came with five kafans. And he tells the Prophet, okay, the first one is for Lady Khadija. The Prophet inquired, what about the other four? To whom do they belong? He tells him, the second one is for you, Ya Rasulullah. Write in your will or say in your will that when you pass away, that you are placed in this kafan. So the Prophet asks about the third one. Who's the third kafan for? He's told that this is for your cousin and successor Ali ibn Abi Talib, save that for him. He says, okay, what about the fourth one? Who's it for? Jibra'il tells him that's for your daughter Fatima These are kafan from paradise, this is reserved for her. He asks about the fifth one, he is told that this will be for a grandson that you will have, which is Al-Imam Al-Hasan that's for him. And then, you know, later on, there are some hadiths that state that, you know, the Prophet ﷺ kept this kafan with Lady Zainab. We do have some historical references that state she kept the kafan. So when Lady Fatima ﷺ was passing away, she gave those pieces of kafan to Lady Zainab. She told her, I want this to keep as an amana. At that point, only two were left. So she tells her, Zainab, keep this kafan. I got this from the Prophet. These are heavenly pieces of shrouds. And one of them is for your father, Amir al-Mu'mineen When he is killed, this kafan shall be for him. Make it available. And the second one is for your brother, Hassan. So she asks, what about my brother, Hussein? How come there is no kafan for him? That's when Lady Fatima tells her, your brother Hussein will die as a shaheed in Karbala. And so he will be buried without a kafan. So these were heavenly kafans that came down when Lady Khadija passed away. Finally, Fatima when her mother passed away, Lady Khadija died, she was in extreme pain and she, she was very emotional, she was crying, she would go around the Prophet. Imagine she was only five. She would go around the Prophet and she would cry and she would say, Father, where is my mother Khadija? Where is my mother Khadija? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends Jibra'il 
he comes to the Prophet and he tells him, Ya Rasulullah, Allah sends his salam to you and he sends his salam to Fatima. Tell your daughter Fatima that Allah says, your mother Khadija is now in paradise with Lady Maryam and with Asiya. And he gives her a description of the castle that Lady Khadija has in paradise. So the Prophet comforts Lady Fatima, he tells her that, she says, Allah inna Allah huwa salam because the Prophet told her, Allah says salam to you, O Fatima. Remember a five-year-old girl, this was her reply, inna Allah huwa salam wa minhu salam wa ilayhi salam. Allah is peace and from Him comes peace and to Him peace shall return. So this is the year of the sorrow and this is the 10th year after the Ba'tha. Next we'll examine inshallah some very important events that happened after this. There is only three years that remain in Mecca. These are very difficult three years because now the Prophet has lost his financial supporter, Lady Khadija, and his political and social supporter, Abu Talib. These are very trying years for the Muslims.